So I have to do a little preamble before we get into our text and, uh, and pray. In 1886, a theologian named Emil Scherer um, said that he believed Luke was wrong on his dates and the early fathers, all of which pointed to what we would call 3 BC as the birth of Christ. He said, no, no, that, that's not right. He missed it. And it was based on evidence that he had that King Herod died in 4 BC. So if Herod died in 4 BC, and we know from both Luke and Matthew that that was the king when Jesus was born, then Jesus had to have been born sometime 4, 5, or 6 BC. And so he got a number of historians at that time to look at his evidence and agree together, and it's called the Schur Consensus. And so they presented that. It was accepted by academia as fact, and that's how it stood for 80 years. In the mid-60s, another group of historians said, wait a minute, there are a number of things that don't match, they don't work for a 4 BC death for King Herod, and more evidence had come, and they said, no, actually, his death, uh, if you take all of the evidence and put it all together, 1 BC is actually when he died. And when you move that death to 1 BC, all of a sudden, the, the census that brought Joseph and Mary becomes very evident that was held in 3 BC. In fact, the star show that, they, that the wise men, that brought the wise men, becomes very evident of what it was and why they came. And so I've been talking about this and preaching about this for years. I finally wrote a book. It's more like a booklet. It's called The One Born King. And we have a free copy, one per family, out on the table out there. If, if you want one, and they're gone by the time you get there, you can get these online. Just go to Amazon.com. They're very, very inexpensive. Um, the, the one born king. You'll hear about it all today anyway, so you probably don't need, even need the book. So could we all stand together as we read our text the one born king, we're reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped 
over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to, to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. Make it alive today. Father, you have something for each one. You have something, I believe, for us as a church, as a whole. Please, please hide me behind your cross and speak, Lord. We, we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. You may be seated. The one born king first, who were the magi? These magi from the east were first introduced to the idea of magi in Babylon. These are wise men that are close advisors to the king. Daniel was the chief magi in Babylon. Then Persia took over and once again, Daniel was the chief magi in Persia. Now, the interesting thing about Daniel is he wrote, he, he lived in the 6th century B.C., but he wrote these prophecies that would, would go over four kingdoms. He prophesied about Babylon, Greece and Persia, or Persia and the, the, the Medes, then Greece, then Rome, and he prophesied at great length and in great detail. In fact, so much detail that liberal scholars believed for a long time that Daniel was not what it appeared to be, that Daniel was actually written after the fact. And the reason why these details are so accurate is because it was already history when it was written, and it's, it's projected as Daniel living back then, but actually it was, it was a contemporary in the second century. Well, since that time, um, that liberals came up with this elaborate theory um, we have found in the Dead Sea Scrolls Old Testaments that date back to the 2nd century B.C. And right among all the other Old Testament books is the book of Daniel. And so honest scholars today look at that and say the idea that they would have, the Essenes and others that had collected would have included a book by a contemporary that pretended to be something would be included along Scripture is ridiculous. Daniel was written right when Daniel said, he wrote, and it, it is absolutely inspired and prophetic. Okay, so, so have that in mind first. Now I want you to think about Nostradamus. Nostradamus wrote hundreds of years ago and he prophesied all kinds of things that are very vague and many of them are inaccurate. Yet, even so, people still, whenever a new event happens, Nostradamus said this was going to happen. Da, 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 da. Okay? So imagine these magi and their children and their children's children and these prophecy are, prophecies are passed on and every single one of them is exactly right on. And boom, 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 boom. They are, they are watching these prophecies well. There are two reasons why I believe these magi are in the line of Daniel. Number one, they knew when Messiah 
was coming. Daniel is the only book in the Old Testament that gives when. It says in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which came in the days of Nehemiah, there's going to be seven sevens followed by 69 sevens. Messiah is going to appear on the earth. It's the only book that has the time Messiah appears. They are looking for Messiah. But secondly, and to me, more, even more convincing, is they have the identity of Messiah. They are looking for the one born king. He's not in line to become a king. He is born king, and they're coming not to honor him, but to worship him. This is the divine king. Where did they get this? This is Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 7. It says who Messiah is going to be. It says, there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations, not just the Jewish nation, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. They are, I believe, disciples, descendants of the chief magi, Daniel, and they are also astronomers and astrologers. They read the stars. Guys, the constellations, it's a mystery, they, but they've been around forever. Job gives the constellations. These constellations that represent different animals and people and different things. It's in the stars. And they were, they were there right from the beginning. And they read the stars like you and I would read the morning paper, believing that God was speaking to them through the stars. Point two, the king of kings. Augustus Caesar was not born king. Who was this guy? His original name was Octavius. He was Julius Caesar's nephew. Julius Caesar was murdered in 44 BC, and Octavius um, dates his reign from 44 BC, even though originally he is a co-ruler with somebody named Mark Antony. Octavius and Mark Antony co co-rule what is a Roman Republic. They, they are leading something that is called a Republic. It is run by a Senate. And, and they, they are kind of the, the leaders of that Senate. Well, this was until 31 B.C. In 31 B.C., um, there was a war between Octavius and Antony and Cleopatra in um, a place called Actium, which is Egypt. And Octavius won. So he is the sole ruler over what is still the Roman Republic, 31 BC until 27 BC. In 27 BC, the Roman Senate makes him Augustus. Augustus, so Augustus isn't a name, it's actually a title. It means 
majestic one, to be filled with majesty. And at that point, 27 BC, Rome essentially goes from being a republic that has a senate in control to a monarchy where there's a king in control. So he's made the king in 27 BC. Okay, so what does that have to do with us? So when you have all the money and you have all the power, what do you concern yourself with? Legacy. Now you want titles. Now you want to be remembered. So in 3 BC, Augustus Caesar, this is according to Luke 2 as well, ordered a census to be taken of the whole earth, the whole Roman Empire. Wasn't for taxes. Matthew, Matthew, or, or the King James includes the word taxes, but it's not in the original because it's not for taxes. Um, Israel wasn't even under the direct domination of Rome at the time, so they wouldn't have paid taxes, but only paid tribute. We'll talk more about that in a, in a moment. This, this census was not for taxes. It was for an oath, an oath of loyalty to Caesar. And it is dated 3 B.C., by four outside sources, or three outside sources outside of the Bible. One of them is a Roman historian named Orosius. Here's what he writes. Augustus ordered that a census be taken of each province everywhere, and all the peoples of all the nations took oath, and at the same time, through the participation participation in the census were made part of one society. Orosius dates this to 3 BC. What did the oath look like? Well, we get more information. Moses of Karen from Armenia, another ancient historian, tells about statues being brought in to the temples in Armenia and Roman soldiers asking, demanding that people bow down and give their loyalty, give their worship, if you will, to Augustus. There's a plaque found in Paphlagonia that says the same, that at this time, that, the ten, that statues of Augustus was, was brought into the temple and people had to make this loyalty oath to him. He writes in his own journal that he was presented with the title Father of the Country in 2 BC, February, in February of 2 BC, um, from the, and, and it was given to him by the entire Roman Empire. So this is a census, not for taxes, but for an oath. So this was the one that brought um, Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. So now we have to talk a little about Herod, King Herod. Herod was not born king. He was made king. How was he made king? In 39 BC, Octavius and Mark Antony made him king of the Jews. This is how Rome ran their empire. There was much of Rome was under the direct control of Rome, but there were these fringe places 
that it was too much trouble for them to do direct control. So what they would do is they would place a king there and they would self-govern. They would let them self-govern and they would just pay tribute. And at the time of Jesus' birth, Israel is one of these client kingdoms. They have, Rome has made Herod king of the Jews. Now, he loved being king. And he became very jealous because he wanted to protect his power. And so he was, he would do anything. There were, there were two heirs, natural heirs, Alexander and Aristobulus from his favorite wife, Miriam. And he killed them because he thought they were making a conspiracy to kill him. And he killed his wife, Miriam, his favorite wife. Then he, he made, uh, a few years before he died, he made Antipater, another son, his heir. And five days before Herod died, he killed Antipater once again because he was suspicious and and. And that's just who he was. Everything was about being king and staying king. The, the, the idea of him killing, when it says that, that when, the, when the wise men came and said, where is the one born king of the Jews? All Jerusalem was troubled. This is, this is trouble. We've got to squelch this out. We've got to find, find this child and we need to kill him. And so we have the story of, of Herod. And, and you say, Pastor Tom, okay, that's the story. What, what, what does that have to do with us today? Everything. It was all about politics. It was all about me being king, me being recognized that I'm king, everybody telling me that I'm king. And there, there was no lack of energy to protect my kingship. So what's happened in this last year? Guys, I've never seen so much clawing and manipulating. I've never seen so many millions of dollars spent all to be king, all so that my guy is king. Because if my guy isn't king, there will be a disaster in this country. I've never seen so much slander than what has happened in this last year. The, the right slanders the left, the left slanders the right, and it is going to be a disaster if our guy does. And, and there's been so, we've been so troubled as a country. We've been so troubled that our guy has to get in and, and conspiracy is the, the language of the day is that if we don't get our way, then there has been a conspiracy and, and there's been lots of energy. There's still lots of energy about this. So in some ways, our, our day is a little similar to that day. It was a very political day. There was a lot of politics happening, a lot of energy around it. But while this is happening, God's doing something. God is drawing. The Bible says this about, about the Father, uh, John 6, 44. No one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. These, these wise men are drawn Deep calls to deep. How are they drawn? Certainly by Scripture. Certainly by what the Scripture reveals and the prophecies of Daniel. They are, they are watching those Scriptures. They are, they are looking for a sign that Daniel probably had given them from Balaam's prophecy. Numbers 24, 17. It says, A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter 
will rise out of Israel. A scepter is a ruler. And so, so, so the, God will give a, a, a sign in the heavens to confirm what he's doing on earth. And they are, they are watching for that sign. But there's no marketing. There's no power play. There's no money being spent. Here's what Matthew 12 says. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. He's not going to advertise himself. And no one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory in his name. The nations will put their hope. These guys come in response to this unseen, unheard drawing. And they said these words that they saw the star. Now, some have thought that God created a star. The star of Bethlehem is something great. Maybe it's an angel, and the reason why is because this star does stuff stars don't do. Stars don't move. This star moves, and this star leads them. This star goes, and then it stops, and clearly this is a supernatural type of thing. Hold on. The ancient people did not differentiate between planets and stars except for this one thing. Planets move. They called them wandering stars. <laughs> so there were just two. They didn't differentiate that these are two types of different celestial bodies. There's just, they're different, but here's how they're different. One stays fixed and, and one moves. And so they're looking. They, they're being drawn by God. They're being drawn by Scripture. And, and then in August of 3 B.C., Inside of the constellation Leo, Leo the lion was always associated with Judah all the way back to Genesis because he, the, the, the ruler, the scepter is going to come from Judah who is like a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So Leo the lion in the constellation was always the, the constellation for Judea. So what happens in August 13th of 3 BC, and let me just say this about astronomy. Astronomy is insane. They, they, they can reproduce the skies of every single day. That's why they know that the Christmas star is going to come tomorrow. We'll, t- we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but they know every sky of every night. You just r- run the tape back and it's all scientific. So they can, they can tell you exactly what the sky looked like in any night in the past. It's crazy. So what happened in, on August 13th of 3 B.C.? is Jupiter, Jupiter is the king, always called the king planet. Jupiter the king has this very close conjunction. Conjunction is when from our eyes it looks like they become one or become very, very close together. It has a conjunction with Venus. Venus is the mother, Jupiter is the king, and it's a very close conjunction and we can only, and it's in Leo. It's in the constellation Leo that this conjunction happens. And so maybe this is it. Maybe, the, maybe, this is, maybe, maybe this is when someone was born. 
Well, then something else happens. On September 3rd, Jupiter has a conjunction with Regulus. Regulus is the brightest star in Leo. Regulus means king. So you've got the king planet and the king star coming into a conjunction with each other. Jupiter goes past Regulus, and then something happens. It's called retrograde motion. And this is an astronomical term that just means from our vision, it will appear the planets go past things, stop, and then go backwards. And that's the same reason why when you go fast in a car and there's a car going slow, it, it, it just looks weird. It, it's, a, it's an illusion, but, but it's, it's real to our eyes. So Jupiter, it, it has this conjunction with Regulus, king planet, king star, and then it goes past it, it stops and comes back and has another conjunction with Regulus goes past it again, stops again, and a third time comes and has a conjunction, Jupiter and Regulus. Of course, it's in Leo because Regulus is the brightest star in, in Leo. This happens three times. Very, very rare that there would be three conjunctions like this. They're months apart. There's three months conjunction, three months conjunction, three months conjunction. Then this happens. June 17th. 2 BC. Jupiter and Venus have an off-the-charts conjunction. 0.01 degrees. The one tomorrow that they're calling the Christmas star because it's the closest for six years, for the next six years of a conjunction, it's between Jupiter and Saturn, is, is 0.1. This is 0.01. And it's right next to Regulus. And, it's, and, and they, they call it the Christmas star. It's in planetariums all over the world. You can go online and Dr. Mark or John Mosley from Wisconsin actually has a whole video thing he did on NBC. But when it comes together, it becomes one star and lights up the whole sky. June 17th, 2 BC. That's probably what got them moving toward Bethlehem. This is it. The ruler has been born. I'm just going to pick up reading now from an astronomer of what happened after the, the, the 2 BC, June 17th, 2 BC conjunction. <clears throat> Jupiter then moved westwards. By mid-November, it had passed the zenith and was shining in the western sky and still moving west. Six weeks later, Jupiter had reached its furthest point west, came to a halt and stood still against the background stars in the sky, 65 degrees above Bethlehem. An astronomer tracking the movement of planets through the star field watches not so much on the scale of minutes, but on the longer scale of days, weeks, and months. On this scale of time, Jupiter then stood still. On December 25th of 2 BC, as it entered retrograde, Jupiter reached full stop in its travel through the fixed stars. Magi viewing from Jerusalem would have seen it stopped in the sky above the little town of Bethlehem in the abdomen of the constellation Virgo. Now, stars can't point to a house. 
So how'd they get to the house? Guys, <laughs> Joseph and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They did go back to Nazareth for a while and then, and then moved their family at, at some point later and rented a house, which is where the wise men come to. But the shepherd... The angels appeared to the shepherds. And the, the Bible says the shepherds told everybody. <laughs> they told everybody. Everybody knew about Joseph and Mary and the special child. Where, if they came to the border of Bethlehem and said, where, where is the one? that They would say, oh, that's the house. Oh, the special house. Yeah, that's it. So the drawing that God had, it included scripture, it included signs, and it included people that said, this is where he is. So is his drawing today. Point three, last point, the mystery of the gifts. So these guys come to the house. They, they behold this baby and they bow down to worship him. And they bring gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Scholars, there's been lots of conversation about those gifts and what they represent. First, certainly they represent, their, their point, their, the gifts are pointing to the identity of the one that was born. Gold was the gift you gave to a king. Frankincense was what the priests use in the temple. It, it speaks that Jesus is not just king, but he's also priest. In the Old Testament, you, had, you were different lines. If you were a king, you could not be a priest. In fact, you got in a lot of trouble if you tried to be a priest when you were a king. But a new covenant was coming, that there was going to be one born, Messiah, Psalm 110 says, that he's going to be king and priest together. Priest means he is our mediator before God forever and ever. He is our representative before God. And the third one is myrrh. Well, myrrh is interesting because it's a burial spice. Myrrh speaks of his identity, not just as king and priest, but he's also the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice that all sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to. I want to read to you from John chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And if there's any question about what this means, the next verse says, He was speaking of his death. Him saying, if I be lifted up, is speaking of him dying on a cross. If he be lifted up on that cross, that he will draw all people to himself. Jesus came to die. The shepherds that the angel appeared to were not raising their sheep for wool. They were raising them for sacrifice. Bethlehem is close to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem is where the temple is and they, need, they needed hundreds of thousands of lambs to be sacrificed every single year because that's what the feast, Passover, everybody had to have their own lamb and it had to be an approved lamb. So they raised them. That's why Jesus was mad when they were selling them and cheating people. Anyway, whatever. Um, 
These lambs were being raised for... So they're watching over the lambs that are going to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And so isn't it fitting that they would be the only ones invited to come and watch over the Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. Here's what the angel said to the shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For tonight in Bethlehem is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, if there's supposed to be great joy for all the people, and I'm part of all the people, where's the great joy? How do you, how do you get the great joy? We always hear that Christmas is the time of great joy. How, how do you get great joy? Where does it come from? Well, here it is. God can't give you joy. He can only share it with you. God is joy. God in his presence is fullness of joy. That's Psalm 1611. So for you to have joy, you have to be able to draw near to God. So Jesus was lifted up on that cross so that we could come all the way to God as sinners. He had to sacrifice himself so that we could actually come into the real presence of God. In the Old Testament, without his presence, all you can do is do your duty. All you can do is be religious. But the New Testament promises that we're going to be able to come and draw near to God and his joy can actually become our joy. This is what Jesus did for us. Jesus says in John 15, 11, listen to this. These words I have spoken to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Jesus, I came to share my joy. But the way you get joy, it's, 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 it's not about how many presents you get. It's not whether you can meet with your family and you thought your sister was coming home and and now I'm not going to have joy. No, 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 no. Joy is in God and you have to share it. You've got to live close enough to God to experience joy. And it's good news of great joy for all the people. What does that mean? Well, that means you don't earn it. You enter it. That means all includes addicts. It includes murderers, it includes sinners, it includes religious people, it includes everyone. This invitation is out there for everybody to come and live close, to draw near. This is why Jesus died. Not just so that you'd go to heaven one day, but so that you could live drawing near where you can actually share God's joy because you're living so close to him. Good news of great joy. So, um, but there's controversy about these gifts. Is it just, are they just pointing to who Jesus is? Or are they also speaking about what our worship looks like? They came and they worshipped him. 
and they gave him gold. What would gold represent? Our money. You say, well, why, do, why does God want my money? God, what God wants is your heart. It says in Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. He wants your heart, but your treasure's in the way. So he will ask as part of our worship that we, we give resources. We give, we give our money. Greg talked about it last week. What does the incense, the frankincense represent? The incense were the prayers of the saints. It says in Revelation that, that the prayers of God's people rise to him like incense. First, First Thessalonians 5 uh, talks about pray without ceasing. That, that one thing that we give God as part of our worship is our dependence on him. And it's not, we'll just pray when we're in trouble, but we live in this dependence where we're, we're praying about everything because that's part of our worship. Then we have the myrrh. The myrrh speaks about our death as part of our worship. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an oxymoron, because sacrifices are dead, but we are to be dead and alive at the same time, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I want to talk about death to self as being part of our worship. So one of the greatest, most powerful voices in all of literature is a guy from Russia named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was an idealist when he was young. Then he went against communist rule and he was imprisoned in the, the gulag. And while he was in prison, he was converted to Christ. And he tells us just a little of his story in this quote that I want to read. Here's what he says. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. <laughs> so he starts out in this prison, and it's very clear to him that we are the victims, we are the oppressed, we are the abused, we are clearly the good guys, and the evil guys are the communists that put, put us here. But then he spent some time in the prison, and he, and he noticed something. Evil wasn't just out there. These prisoners that he was with, they had horrible attitudes. They were just as selfish. Just as, If they were in charge, they would have... They, he saw them impressing each other. He's like, no, no, evil's not just out there somewhere. Evil's in here too. And then it got even closer. And he said, oh, oh my, I see the problem. It's me. The problem of evil is in me. The answer for evil is I need a savior. I need to be saved. I cannot tell you the liberty that comes from this. The great evil today is not racism. 
It, the great evil today is not that, that God is asking us to address. is not socialism. It's not the, all these people on the left, they're the evil. All these Democrats, or all the evil is on the right. It's these Republicans. If we could just, they're, they're the evil. And we, we, we want to locate evil. The, the, we want to get it somewhere else. Oh, I know what the evil is. It's my spouse. I have, I have found out the problem. It's my spouse. Or it's my boss. Or it's my mother-in-law. And as long as the evil is out there, my self-righteousness is protected. And I'm a victim that has somebody else to blame. Let me tell you where great freedom comes to. That when you recognize that what God's speaking to you about is not somebody else's evil. He's speaking to you about your heart so that you can be cleansed. You can be saved. But it takes a death. A death to self-righteousness. It's a death to me being my own king. Augustus was made king. Herod was made king. And you know what's happened in our society? We make ourselves king. And God comes and he shows us the problem. The big problem, we're on the throne. So this will help you understand the limits of counseling. I'm a great believer in counseling. Do counseling all the time. Counseling can help you identify your trauma. It can identify why you are responding the way you're responding. And, and this just keeps getting touched and you have all these reactions. And so if you identify it, your counselor can then pray over you and God can bring healing to you and God can heal. He binds up the broken hearted. And, and if there's something demonic there and, and it's a spiritual darkness and there's like a demon there, somebody can come alongside you and identify the lies you're believing and identify the voice that you're listening to and rebuke it for you and come alongside you. But here's the limit of counseling. Is at the end of the day, there's something that you have to do alone. And that's embrace the cross. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, then take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find their life. So this is why counseling, at the end of the day, you're going to have to die. <laughs> and you're going to have to be, you're going to have to, you're going to have to do that alone. Counselor can't do it for you. Counselor can talk to you, can guide you, can pray for you, can rebuke a demon over you. But at some point, you're going to have to die to yourself or you will not change. And so what happens is you got people that are in counseling their whole life. Why? Because they don't want to change. <laughs> they want to be king. And, I, I, and please pay for the counseling if that's all it is. is you, want to, you just want to stay king and have somebody to sympathize with all of your problems. Please pay for that counseling. That's why my counseling sessions don't go that long because at some point people either choose to die or not. And, and if, you don't, if you're not willing to die, it's not going to work. But you die alone. No one can do it for you. This is the call of Christianity. 
So, here's how we'll end. I'm going to invite you to officiate over your own funeral. Now, I realize that many of you are not pastors, so I'm going to tell you what it is like to officiate the funeral of a believer. Somebody, somebody has died, they believed in Jesus, so you've got two roles as the officiant. Number one, you grieve the loss. You grieve, they, they were here, they were instrumental, they, they played a role, God comfort us in our grief, and then you celebrate by saying, they're in a better place now. They are in a better place now. They are closer to God, they're right in his presence, and and so that's the two things that the officiant does. So how do you officiate over your own funeral? Well, here's how. First you decide, I'm going to die. I'm going to die to my own dreams, to my own offenses of how, what God should have done and what people should have done, and I'm going to die, and I'm going I'm to stop solving my own problems, and I'm, I'm going to stop solving the world's problems and carrying the weight of the world. I'm going to stop, in essence, being king, and I'm going to die to that. And I don't believe there's real repentance unless there's sorrow. <laughs> you need to grieve that. Hmm. I used to be in charge. Now I'm not in charge anymore. That dream is dying. Maybe God will raise it up, but maybe he won't. And all those rights that I had to be offended and disappointed and angry and blaming and, and all the people I met, I got to let go of all of that. Hmm. I miss being king. And then you say this about yourself. Oh, poor Tom. We grieve all of Tom's loss. Tom has lost control. Tom has lost his offenses. Tom has lost... But he's in a better place now. Why? Because he's closer to Jesus. Why? Because now he's not carrying the weight of America. He's not carrying the weight of the world. He's, not, he's at peace. He doesn't have to solve everything. He has this joy because he's so close to God now because he's, he's in a better place now. He died. <laughs> I oversaw the funeral. He died, and now he's in a better place. This is what God is calling us all to. So here is my prayer for you. The worship team can start coming. So in that day, most people missed heaven's narrative. God was doing something amazing in their day. It was happening right in their time, right in their midst. But most people missed it because they were caught up in the energy of who is going to be king and da-da-da-da-da. And religious people, the Bible says in Jerusalem, they were all troubled in Jerusalem. All the, they were all very religious people, but they miss what God is doing right in their midst. And only a few people actually were part of God's narrative. The wise men, Mary and Joseph, there were only a few people that really understood, oh my, God's doing something. So here's my prayer for you. That you will not look back on this time from eternity and say, oh my, God was doing something in our time. And I was caught in a different narrative. 
I was caught in conspiracies. I was caught in, in worry and, and, and accusation. I was, I was watching this news and that news and that news. And, and whatever news you want, guys, you can get it. If you want to go far right, you get that news. If you want to go far left, you get that news. And everybody's mad everywhere. And it's so easy to get caught up in that. Because why? Because we're bored. We're just bored. <laughs> but there's another narrative happening right now. God, in our midst, the King of Kings, the one born King, is raising up his people in revival for a promised awakening. There's only one hope for this world, guys, and that's a genuine Holy Spirit revival and awakening in this land. That is the answer. And, but it's not impressive because it comes gently and softly and it moves way slower than we would like it to move because we want something to happen right now. And so we, it's easy to get involved in all kinds of things. God's doing something right now. And honestly, I don't want our church to miss it. I want our church to be on the front lines. I don't want to be caught up in all of the debate and all of the opinions. I want to die to being king myself. I want to let go of my strong whatever it is and say, Jesus, there's, there's been one born king. Would you come and rule in my heart? Would you forgive me? Would you wash me? And it's fine to have opinions. I know we all have opinions. I certainly have opinions. But can we soften them so that we don't miss the much bigger narrative of what's going on today? Could we stand together? In just a moment, I'm going to officiate over our funeral. But before that, if you wouldn't mind bowing your head and closing your eyes. Maybe you're here today and you know that God has drawn you. The Bible says it this way. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. I was 19 years old and I grew up very religious. But I did not know it's not enough that Jesus died on the cross for you. You actually have to open your door. You have, it's not enough that he knocks. It's not enough that you had a religious experiences. That's him knocking. You have to, at some point, open the door and say, Jesus, come in. You are the king. Now be my king. And he knocks gently, quietly, and persistently. But somebody helped me when I was 19 years old and they prayed a prayer that helped me open my door. So I like to help people pray that prayer. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if, if that is you, Jesus is knocking. And today, you want to open that door and ask him to come in. Would you just raise your hand right now long enough for me to see it? I see that hand and that hand. I'm moving across. I see that hand and that hand. God bless you. I see this hand there. I see that hand. God bless you. There's still, oh, I see some more hands back there. God bless you. There's still, there's still time if you want to raise your hand. We're going to do something in just a moment. Anybody else? I see that hand back there. I see this hand right here. God bless you. 
So now, here's what we're going to do. Whether you're here live or online, if, you're, if your hand is up, I want you to slip that hand over your heart right now and pray this in your own words to God. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. And thank you for knocking on my life, on my heart, for drawing me. Only you could draw me. Lord, today I want to open my heart. I want to open my door. Please come in and save me and forgive me and cleanse me from being my own king. Lord, I receive right now by faith that gift of eternal life. I I don't earn anything, but I enter into the joy of your presence. Lord, you said that, that we could come just as we are. So, Lord, I'm not pretending. I'm not performing. I'm just coming. Lord, receive me right now, I pray. In Jesus' name. Let's do this song together, and then we will have our funeral. So, whether you are here live or online, if you wouldn't mind just opening your arms, closing your eyes. Lord, we grieve the loss of our own independence, the loss of our own control over everything. We, we grieve the, the loss of being able to express our strong opinions to everybody around us. And we just die. We just die to it. And then we celebrate that we're in a better place now. Lord, would you release peace? There is no fears. There's no debts. There's no future that you have to organize and create and control. No, you're not king anymore. You're not king anymore. Mm, He's in a better place now. She's in a better place now. (laughs) She's trusting God. Jesus is her king. And Lord, I'm praying for this congregation, individually and corporately, that we would get close enough to share your joy. You said the joy of the Lord is our strength. Lord, would you break out in joy? He's in a better place now. He's before the Lord. He's in the presence of God. She is in a better place now. She's experiencing the joy of closeness with God. Lord, fill us with joy. And then, Father, I'm praying for all of my dear brothers and sisters and myself. We want to be in that bigger narrative that's quiet to the world, that's silent to the world, that's very unimpressive to the world, yet happening right in our time, right in our midst. So, Father, we give you all of the loud voices all of the urgent voices that are requiring me to do this, do this, do this, do this. We give you all of those. And we say, Lord, we want to be part of the the narrative of revival and awakening that you are orchestrating right now in our time. The signs are all there. Lord, let 2021 be an amazing year because your purpose, your plan, Your goals came to pass. Lord, certainly, we're in a better place now.
So let us carry that with us, I pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.